Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Fintech ki baat dil se. Today we have with us Ankit Mehra, founder of Gyandhan. Gyandhan is a startup that is focused on enabling educational loans for people who are trying to go abroad and you know are looking to raise funds for that. Thank you so much Ankit uh, for joining us today. Thank you so much for your valuable time. It's a pleasure having you here. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, Ankit, uh, so Gyandhan, right? Uh, this is a problem basically it's solving a problem that a lot of people uh, who are trying to go abroad and study face right educational loans are uh, getting funds for that for that uh, you know expensive course abroad like a lot of us aspire to go abroad but not all of us have funds and i have seen too many dream shatter just because the funds are not there so would want to hear a bit about uh, gyanthan first what it does and then secondly after we are done with that would want to hear from you on you know what inspired you to start gyanthan and uh, you know how did you get into that business what was the problem statement that you figured out how did you come across that so it's a two part question over to you sure so gyanthan is an education financing marketplace uh, what we do is we work with banks and nbfcs to help students get the right loans so mm-hmm. on the one hand we help students figure out which is the best loan possible for them and on the other hand we work with banks and nbfcs to ensure that the new products are developed and the policies are well intentioned and make sense so you don't create policies in vacuum that so that the product doesn't really makes any sense so that is where really how we work in addition to being a marketplace we are also an, we are also an nbfc so now in the last one year or so we have also started doing loans on our own books we started with the focus on education loans for studies abroad but at this point in time we are also catering to online courses or edtech programs or offline upskilling programs in india mm-hmm. that level uh, what gandhan is if i had to summarize it is really for us the objective was to equalize and expand access to higher education so we didn't really have the idea of study abroad kahi bas karna it was really hey how can we make education more democratic democratize education and the idea was for us given our backgrounds we felt if we can simplify access to finance we will have made a kind of contribution in that entire journey understood understood super So I uh, would also want to know a bit about your background right so where where do you come from where were you before this and uh, you know what essentially struck a chord inside you that yaar nahi khud ka kuch karna hai aur yahi problem sheet mein solve karna hai so what was that sure uh, so i'll i'll start with the ki how did this problem strike me so back in 2013 um, i joined esa business school in barcelona and uh, when i joined school it is one of the top 10 business schools in some ranking so typically jo bhi top business schools hote hain wahan pe hota hi hai ki you get a loan from a local bank so you don't necessarily have to rely on an indian bank to give you your loan but this was 2013 europe was still reeling under the effect of the recession so what happened was the local banks stopped giving out loans to indian students mm-hmm. suddenly you had students who had gotten an admission to a top business school where the fees and all expenses will be close to a crore and now they are struggling to find ways to finance it um i was trying to help my colleagues uh, who had gotten admission trying to figure out if there are options in india and that's when i realized ki options hai nahi so we did our best to kind of help a few students here and there trying to say this is the best better option or that is the better option and then when when we started our course we used to have these program these uh, discussions in the mbs program when it really just used to be a how will we solve world hunger or kind of any case discussion and I, I, the idea really was at the back of my mind because before joining esa uh, esa business school i worked at for at capital one for 6 years so i graduated did my i am a typical engineer did my engineering and never worked in engineering 
I did my engineering back in 2007 from IIT Kanpur, uh, joined Capital One straight out of college and uh, been in financial services uh, for six years. And 2013, when I was shifting, I was shifting with the idea that I'll move back to India after my MBA and I'll start something in the sports sector. Mm-hmm. So the idea was ki, let's move from US to Europe. See uh, a few things. I knew the school had good tires with uh, football club Barcelona and a few other uh, sporting companies. So I said, okay, I'll do some internships, some projects, and then I'll get some understanding, work with them for a couple of years, and then move back to India to start something in the sports sector. But once this, once I encountered this thing, it's really uh, the entire Capital One experience came back into mind because Capital One, we were doing risk-based pricing. So we were trying to say, how can we find the best way to provide access to credit in a sustainable fashion? And it was mm-hmm. one of those early discussions we were having in the classroom around developed economies, developing economies, population, hunger, and whatnot. That I said, I mean, uh, it really makes sense to take a shot at it. I mean, if we can really make a difference here, then at least I will have the uh, kind of uh, ability to sit in this conversation and make some meaningful contribution. And even if I fail, I will know 10 ways it did not work so that someone else can mm-hmm. figure out the 11th way. So that is really the idea for me. And uh, my co-founder, actually, Jainesh has a very uh, more personal story because Jainesh prior to getting into, so Jainesh is a product of IIT Delhi, worked in GS Associates and then was working with me at Capital One. But prior to getting into IIT, Jainesh was a beneficiary of Super 30. Mm-hmm. Jainesh was not the whole aspect of uh, study abroad while a problem, but it was really a case of, hey, if I don't have access to finance, I might really be bereft of even the opportunity of getting in uh, access to coaching. Right. So that was the thought process that was at the back of his mind. So when I decided, ki, hey, I will move back to India to start Gyanadhan, I knew I had to reach out to Jainesh to discuss this idea and see if he wanted to kind of leave his job. And at that point, he was planning to go to Chicago booth. So saying, mm-hmm. hey, don't go, don't do an MBA. Let's do an MBA here itself by figuring out the journey together. Awesome. 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 That's, that sounds like a really interesting journey, you know. And uh, probably uh, one thing that I would want to understand from you is, you know, so lending in India has always been a very... Uh, structured piece when it comes to the traditional organizations, regulated entities, NBFCs and banks and on then from 2017 onwards, there has been a plethora of uh, startups, fintechs, uh, uh, what do you say, digital lending apps, uh, completely either in the gray area or completely unregulated operating and giving out loans and all of that, right? So how do you see, uh, I mean, there have been recent uh, efforts from the regulator to essentially, you know, try to regularize everything and try to bring everything into the purview of the regulations. Yeah. But uh, how do you see the education loan market? And uh, I would want to divide this answer into two segments. When you look, talk about study abroad loans, that would be one thing. And when you talk about education loans in India, that could be a different thing altogether. So how would you divide the market in these two segments and probably... Talk about innovations in both of them and uh, how do you see that going forward given the current situation or the current guidelines? Sure. Um, so at a high level, I'll say education loan has been the uh, one of the most underserved segments. Um, mm. I mean, uh, we've had the push from the government at multiple stages. We had the Indian Banking Association guidelines come in somewhere early 2000s around high Hey, we should make access easier. Um, and those were well-intentioned guidelines, but what ended up happening was because of multiple reasons, it really just created a bubble in the sense that you had all these, uh, I would say, uh, 
you had a proliferation of MBA and engineering schools, which are not really educating students or not really providing gainful employment. But banks were giving out loans because of some uh, push or some other aspects, right? So I think education is a public good and higher education might not be a public good. In my mind, it is a capitalist uh, area, but we kind of, uh, in terms of implementation, it got lost somewhere. So what ended up happening was you had this entire middle, early 2000s, mid 2000s, when uh, you had a lot of loans being uh, given by public sector banks. And then uh, these are longer tenor loans. So after a certain period of time, you started seeing losses. And now what ended up happening in early 2000s or the mid, mid 2010s is essentially banks saying, hey, I have this many losses. Why should I even get into education lending? I mean, this is mm -hmm. the asset class. So anyone you talk to, they will say that, hey, there is 8% NPA, 10% NPA. Why should we even get into it? Right. So that high of an NPA in education loans. Well, actually, I mean, there are segments wherein the NPAs uh, for some of the banks, public sector banks in uh, the less than 4 lakh have been like 20% or 25%. Whoa. Uh, so again, that is purely what, what I was saying was down to, I mean, if I give out a, the purpose of a loan is ki, matlab, what is it being used for? If it is used for just getting a degree, which will not get you a employment of gainful employment after that, that's a big issue, right? And that is mm -hmm. what we've seen in the industry. So the domestic market has been... Uh, if you look at the RBI reports, it's been constantly declining uh, for the last uh, many number of years now. Because True. banks have been doing some amount of lending, maybe due to, to meet the PSL norms and so on and so forth. But really, there hasn't really been a, a grounds up understanding of, hey, we really need to understand which segments should be lent to and do it right. The concern has been banks have said, hey, let me just focus on getting my house, housing loan book growing. Why should I even try to solve this problem? Right. So that's why you had these... Uh, NBFCs come up saying, hey, we'll focus specifically on the education loan segment. Uh, the study abroad was something which was historically not really looked at very ag aggressively by any of the players. Really thanks to Credila that uh, came up in the yes, late HDFC and then subsequently were acquired by HDFC over the years. Mm -hmm. I think they were the pioneers if we talk about the Indian markets in terms of helping students get loans for higher studies abroad. True, true. Banks have still not, uh, banks had still not really looked at it as aggressively when we moved back in 2015. Now in the last couple of years or so, we have, now we are seeing that yeah, banks are increasingly looking at this saying, hey, this is probably a good asset class and we can build a huge book if we really focus on it in a meaningful fashion. But at a high level, I think there is still a lot of room, a lot of improvement required both in terms of process, but more importantly, in terms of product as well. In terms of what I was saying, ki, which are the courses which are getting gainful employment? Where should you be doing lending? I think the players who solve that part of the puzzle will be the ones who will really uh, kind of increase this market in a sustainable fashion. I completely agree with you. I think this is this is a classic how to underwrite problem that we are also facing with the NTC segment or the under uh, underserved segment in the uh, Bharat space, right? How do you underwrite them how do you underwrite their ability to pay or intention to pay and here in this case you would want to understand how whether they will have an ability to pay after a future date because you'd be giving a loan which won't start giving you returns for at least three years or two years right it would be a two years or a three years moratorium exactly and so that this is the idea that i had when i when i when i say when i was saying when i was helping my colleagues uh, figure out ways to get a loan because in my mind the entire capital one way of thinking is working at the back of my mind. I was thinking, okay, this person has, this uh, student has such and such background, done work at such and such place. 
gotten admission, they'll probably get a great job. Versus this student has gotten admission into ESA, but I'm still doubtful whether they'll get a great job or not. So it was really just that kind of judgmental underwriting was playing in my mind. And really what we did uh, the first year, Jainesh and myself was really build out the first model, trying to collect data from different sources to say, hey, can we really figure out employability first? Because if I can predict who will get a job, then I can say, okay, I know now the ability is there. Now I have to figure out willingness part of it. But if I cannot figure out ability, then there is, then I have to wait for getting a property and doing a loan based on property. No, agreed, agreed. I think standalone education loan is a lot more required because a lot of people don't want to risk their uh, property just to get an education loan, which would be a smaller amount. But here, I think building a model from the scratch is, is probably the best way to go. I mean, I would want to understand from you if you're willing to share on what kind of parameters do you look at uh, when you, let's say, uh, underwrite a student, for example, who has done engineering, is going to do his MBA from abroad and you know has probably a couple of years of work experience. So how would you look at that student? What are the parameters that you'd see as a positive or a negative? And a bit more around that, if you're willing to share. So, um, so first of all, I'll remove the kind of traditional parameters because uh, we do look at your civil, we do look at your if your co-applicant civil indebtedness and all the traditional parameters are definitely something we will look at. True, true. But the at the core of it, if we are saying that hey, it is a future repayment, so we need to predict employability. Then, as you said, I think we try to look at effectively your resume. Let's put it this way. So, and the idea really being, uh, we have. Uh, the question is, so I'll give you the example. When we started, then we built our first model, uh, the uh, feedback when we went to the industry experts and we said that, hey, we have a model. We think it works really well. We have shown this in some tests and some uh, samples. The first feedback we got was, there is, why are you even building such models? And what we said to them was, yeah. It's not necessarily a case of the Harvard mein ho gaya. Pahli baat to Harvard mein ho gaya does not necessarily mean ki lagegi lagegi. Because Harvard mein bhi bhoat degrees hai. Pahli baat. True. Is ki, chalo, Harvard ka solve kar diya, but baaki bhi to colleges hai na. Matlab, Harvard is not the only thing. Aapko mm-hmm. agar karna hai, to it has to be a return on investment. So really the first aspect is, if I tra- talk about the student, the idea is, as you said, someone who is an engineer going to do an MBA, two years experience. Now the thing is, what did you do in engineering in? Where did you do in engineering from? What was your course scores? Similarly, where are you doing going to do an MBA? Right? Is it a general management? Is it some a specialized course? What has the history of that college been like? Aapki jo dig- do saal ka experience tha, what is your trajectory in that two years itself? Mm. Right? So the idea is if you get uh, like this data for like 60,000 students or 100,000 students for over multiple years, then you can start building basic models to say, hey, I know that someone coming from X school going to Y school has a certain amount of employability probability versus someone coming from a maybe A school going to the Y school has a different employability. So it's really these basic things, but really trying to figure out where is data and where is noise. And then trying to build the model and kind of saying, hey, this is how we'll build it out. And then the second aspect obviously becomes key uh, you also have to take into account it's not a student specific thing, but are you going for a specific specialized degree? Are you going for a general management degree? Then what is the current environment? What is the predicted environment you're going to look like? What kind of a job will you get? Right. So that will be the what we call in modeling exogenous factors, trying to in some form of passion coming in, giving us finally, hey, 
what is the pricing I should have for this person? Or is does the product even exist? Got it, got it. So this could probably be divided into two things, right? One would be whether or not this person could, should get a loan. And if yes, then what is the pricing that should be you know, followed? Exactly. Because, because I think uh, that's why I keep on saying that I don't think uh, unsecured loan is the only answer. I think both at your risk-based pricing, maybe say there is a, a spectrum. There might be a se segment wherein secured loans are the only se sensible options. Or true, true, definitely. you should not even do that because you will just be kept, left with the property and you have to figure out to sell a property. You're a bank, you're not a real estate agent. Right. At the other end, there are segments where an unsecured loan should be the way to go because the student has a credential. They can repay the debt accordingly. No, completely, completely understood. I think this is this is some really great stuff that you guys are doing. And specifically, what would be really you know, interesting to see is how the pricing model actually performs over a period of time. I think that could probably be a very interesting fact to see. Uh, let me take a step back here. What I want to understand is when you look at educational loan as a product, uh, in the entire lending gamut uh, in India, what percentage do you think educational loan contributes to or approximately kya current standing hai in that sector? Uh, so to total originations, I mean, uh, so again, education loans, I'll tell you, uh, and this is something we see in the study abroad more specifically, ki, uh, it, because of the issues and because of the complexity, so on and so forth by traditional lenders, what happens is there are a lot of people who take loans for studies abroad, uh, either in, in the form of a lab or in some other form or fashion. So education mm -hmm. loan, lete hai, but unke liye baki product jada convenient hai, because bank of education loan. Kaisa hai. But if I look myself to education loan so uh, pretty much the portfolio of all banks put together has been around 10 billion dollar mark and that has that has been consistent it's been decreasing over time but it's hovered around the 10 billion dollar mark which but is does, really small i don't know it's 10 billion dollars is like really small but does that also include the labs or the other loans that are taken or does it not no, include this, this will not include the a lab product wherein the purpose has been education loan. This will be purely education loan product. Now it could be an education loan uh, again sure. property. But if it is a lab, wherein I I went out to a my personal bank and kind of took a lab, but then I used the money for something else for higher studies, that's not being counted here. So I mean, as per just uh, on your understanding, on your market understanding, how much do you think would that market be like? Where you don't know the end use of purpose, but a guesstimate would be, you know, a helpful way. Sure. So what we, um, um, so I, I'll tell you, I mean, laptop is a decent product. There are people who go for um, effectively informal financing, which are really high interest rates, right? True. So I'll tell you, uh, uh, on an annual basis, what we kind of, uh, so if I just limit myself first to study abroad, study abroad is of roughly a $30 billion annual spend. What we, uh, kind of uh, guesstimate kind of talking to different industry leaders is that probably we originate anywhere close to 7% of that on an annual basis. So it's peanuts uh, is what we originate on an annual basis. Uh, everything else is self-financed. Now what we know is on that self-finance bucket, we expect that if there is a $2 billion kind of origination happening on a yearly basis, we anticipate that roughly half a billion ke aspas is coming through other means as well. Now that might be the ridiculously highly priced informal financing and people are taking it because the formal process is just so inconvenient and it's True. still a lot of way to go. And then some cases would be lab. 
Agreed, agreed. So in this situation, uh, let's say over the next five years, if you were to take a guesstimate, what would you say the total market size or the market potential would be for uh, for an education loan product, a proper, well built educational product? So when we started out, uh, I mean, um, I, and I think we started out with the whole marketplace aspect because we said that hey, we'll work with banks and NBFCs, and uh, we don't want to focus on the cost of capital, but we want we can do a much better job at predicting risk, so cost of operations, cost of risk, and all that other stuff. Um, as I said, now we are in the NBFC space as well because now we want to work with the banks and NBFC still, but more in a co-lending fashion because what we've realized is if the entire journey has not been solved, addressed well then at some point in time, students get frustrated, right? Because if the dependency is on a certain player, I cannot really uh, influence it beyond a certain point. Uh, okay. But I think uh, if I talk about what is the realizable market, right? So I think of the $10 billion annual spend that we, uh, or $30 billion annual spend that we're talking about, if we look at international comparisons, everywhere almost a third to almost 40, 50% gets financed by formal credit. So in my mind, just the study abroad pop, segment itself should be a 10 billion annual opportunity. And I'm not talking about consulting. And I'm no. not talking about consulting reports which say that the study abroad market will grow to $80 billion annual spend in the next three or four years. Right. Mm. So even if I take the current market size, so to speak, I think uh, the opportunity is almost growing the current market itself by a factor of five. And so I think definitely. in the domestic space, I think there has been a lending going on historically. I think it's really a case of uh, finding the right channel. So I don't think, I wouldn't say, ki, hey, uh, domestic, maybe we, we want to increase, we think that the market will expand five times. But I think it will be a case of, hey, the market probably expands twice or maybe two and a half times. But really, it becomes a much more profitable market, uh, which lends to sustainability and sustainable growth rather than just saying, hey, let me just put money because there is some. Uh, norm I have to meet and then I'll blow that money up. Got it. Got it. So no, that, that really does make sense. I think and going forward also, I probably, I personally view is my personal view is that when you look at the, even the domestic education market, right. Wherein there are a lot of uh, courses coming up on uh, Udemy, Coursera, those kind of things, as well as, you know, models like uh, Baiju's and those kind of startups, which also offer the, um, loans embedded into their uh, products so that you can directly avail them when you are buying. I think those kind of market will also probably boom up a lot yep. when, because the cost of education overall is anyways going up when you look at our cost of kindergartner paying a 5 lakh fee per year to get into kindergarten. I'm like, that's that's ridiculous, right? We yep. all have studied probably in schools wherein we were at the entire annual fee in 10 standard was 500 bucks. Yep. So this kind of really, you know, is a very very much of contrast. And it's not that inflation has gone up that much. It's just more about the lifestyle inflation of these uh, kindergartners. So yes. the idea is all of this at some point of time would probably require some sort of financing either when you want to break the payments into EMIs rather than a lump sum annual fee payment and those kind of products. So the market potential is huge. And I think anyone who cracks the model, I would probably... Taking a step back, I would probably feel that this should be divided into two pieces, right? One would be the school and the ancillary courses, right? The courses and those kind of things financing. And the second would be higher education financing. So I think two separate models, one on the higher education and study abroad piece and one on the school fees would probably be, you know, pretty, uh, like those two, people who essentially crack those two would be, you know, really successful is what I, is what I feel. Absolutely. Because, uh, because you, I mean, it, it, on the head, essentially there is one product wherein it is, you're trying to 
base the product on the student itself, on the future employability. Whereas in the school segment, really, then I cannot build it on the student uh, uh, future. It's, uh, it's more a payment product or it's more a affordability product, kind of trying to break it into multiple chunks so that it becomes more affordable for the parent. Agreed, agreed. More like a BNPL kind of a piece exactly. uh, for the uh, younger crowd. Superb, superb. So this was this was a really interesting piece. Uh, want to take a step back here and talk more about the uh, the guidelines that have recently come into play, right? So before I jump into the guidelines, uh, I would want to talk about uh, partnerships and the importance of that in lending, right? So I mean, we have seen that digital lending recently. I mean, in last five years, as you see. Uh, 80% of digital lending has been happening through partnerships, right? It's It's been happening through mainly through NBFC partnerships. Ba- banks have not been that super active is what my observation has been. But a lot of, uh, I wouldn't name these NBFCs, but a lot of NBFCs have started, you know, having 15, 20, 30, 35 digital partners or digital lending apps as today termed by regu- regulator. But before that, they were not, uh, there was no legal term for these guys, but there was a lot of partnerships. There were multiple models like FLDG, co-lending coal and, coal and all of that. So between like last three years when these kind of innovations happened, like a lot of red flags went up when, uh, when COVID and the loans are not being filled. And then there were many extreme collection mechanisms uh, that were implemented. And after that, uh, guidelines came into play, you know, limiting the kind of partnerships and the models that could be operated and all of that. So first of all, uh, before we start commenting and try to, you know, understand the uh, guidelines, I would want to hear your view on how uh, important partnerships have been for lending in your space. Like, so you yourself were working in partnership with a lot of banks and NBFCs trying to source the right kind of, uh, you know, leads for them, trying to underwrite them or pre-qualify them and then, you know, send it over to them. So we want to understand, uh, you know, the importance of partnerships in this specific segment overall, the education loan segment. I think partnerships are very, very critical. I mean, I, I, I like to keep up. Uh, I, I love that uh, word that I uh, learned some time back in B school around uh, cooperation. I think fintech is a cooperation play wherein you have a competition as well as you have a cooperation going along with the partners. And yes. if I talk about education, lending, I think, and within that, if I talk about the study abroad, because you, you talked about the two segments, BNPL and the study abroad. I think in the study abroad, if I talk about it, these are much longer tenor loans, uh, large ticket, 10, 15 year repayment cycles and so on and so forth. Kind of just by the very nature of it, it is more a bank-like product. True. Right. As an, if I were to start a startup today and kind of say, hey, I'm going to do all these loans on my own, I need to raise a large sums of money. So like I, I take the example, so there is this company in the US so far, which started doing refinancing uh, at the start of the rec- uh, great recession. They raised a billion dollars in 2013 or 2015. Uh, there is a billion dollars in equity. Mm-hmm. Huge amount, but that is the amount you really need to make a meaningful difference. Exactly. Completely so that amount is available with the bank. So I think from, for, from this segment standpoint, partnerships is the key. And that is the reason when we started out, we had this entire thought process of, Hey, should we do P2P lending? Should we do something else? Should we set up in the U S there were a lot of things going on in our mind, but we said that, Hey, you know what? I think we need to figure out a way wherein if the cost of the product is cost of operations, cost of risk and cost of capital, can I really be great at cost of capital? And I mean, is this a, Oh, I'll be only one person costlier that oh, just on the cost of capital. If not, then why shouldn't we partner? Right. And mm-hmm. if I look at it over the years now with the most uh, kind of the guidelines that RBI had come in 
a few years back uh, around coal ending. I think that if you look at coal ending, the thought process is the same. That hey, the some players, the NBFCs might be nimble in certain things. Banks are bringing the low cost of capital. If you really build a good partnership, then what you are offering to the customer is a seamless product at the lowest cost. So I think from that standpoint, partnerships are very very critical. So it be whether it be around cost of capital, well, whether it be abundance of capital. Mm-hmm. And I'll also give the third aspect around the trust aspect as well, because this is something we experienced when we started out at Yandan. And the first year when we started out, we started out with a partnership with SBI and Access. Now, when we started out, uh, the first few calls I did with the customers, almost nine out of ten customers would would say, "I mean, are you fraud or you know run away or stuff like that?" And I used to tell them that I mean, at the end of the day, we are not an asset product. We are not taking money for you to invest in MS. We are actually helping you get money. So, exactly, fraud is not a concern to you. I mean, that has been solved to some extent, a large extent now. But uh, at least the first year, I think the fact that we had partnered with SBI and we could tell the customer hey, you can go to SBI, I think that also lent credibility to us. I think if I had started all on my own, saying, "Hey, I'm kind of helping you go get a." hundred thousand dollar loan to study abroad i think many parents would have been like okay i mean yeah i mean i'm not sure if i trust these guys no exactly i was wondering when you said ki nine out of ten customers asked you that i'm like dude you are getting money why do you want to like why are you concerned about whether that person is a fraud or not because ultimately money is in your account like what's the next What's the next problem? I mean, it's not like they are going to run away with your money, right? I mean, I think, I think on, on reflection, what I did th- think about it was probably because you're not going to get the money completely upfront, right? You're going to get it in tranches, so it might. So some of the uh, thoughts at the back of some people's mind would have been, "Hey, okay, you have approved me for a hundred thousand dollar loan, but now or a seventy lakh loan, but now when I come to you to say, hey, give me thirty lakhs, I need to use thirty lakhs now. At that point, I will say, okay, I'm done." Uh-huh. <laughs> toast <laughs> go for concern yeah 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 that would be one of the concerns but yeah i mean i think generally people get uh, kind of doubt, doubtful on because at the end of the day finance is a business of trust right so i think i i do understand that and as i said now we don't get encounter that issue thankfully because we've had some experience in the market but yeah i mean i think uh, working with partners also lends brings credibility to our fintech in my mind No, definitely. I, I completely resonate with that. Uh, so, looking at this entire uh, you know segment uh, and the importance of partnership in it, how do you see the impact of the guidelines that have come across? Right, there have been now very clear definitions, very clear uh, locus of responsibilities on specific uh, uh, you know entities as well. So now you, since you are also a regulated entity. So yeah. there will be a locus of responsibility on you for a lot of things, right? Yeah. So. would want to understand this from two perspective one is that you have done a lot of partnership wherein you were not a regulated entity but you were just a loan service provider and in that cases when you have done these kind of partnerships how would you see the current guidelines impacting that business model versus when you are a regulated entity now and you would be you know kind of tying up with a lot of people who would be originating loans for you or those kind of things in that how do you see these guidelines impacting uh, this business Sure. Um, so I think uh, first of all, obviously from a regulated entity's perspective, it's very clear. I mean, the guidelines are very clear that you have to uh, adhere to certain norms. I think uh, I'll give you the example uh, first from a regulated entity perspective itself, because in the last few years, as you mentioned, there have been a lot of alternative uh, players coming into the market, and there have been a lot of uh, models coming in. I think uh, the issue with that has been obviously there has been some amount of reckless 
lending and kind of uh, consumer pr- protection has gone for a toss right so Sorry. i think that is something we kind of uh, were struggling with when we were putting on the regulated entity hat uh, in the last uh, year and a half or so where mm-hmm. like we really cannot get into xyz segment because we we were hearing oh x player is originating by crores of loan on a monthly basis but when we looked at the underlying asset or the underlying course we were like i mean there is no way we should be doing a loan in this segment right mm-hmm. from that standpoint uh, if i say what is the impact of digital i think right now to be honest what i see in the market we haven't seen much of a difference uh, we've been, we've seen some uh, uh some folks being scared or some folks being uh, doubtful how it will pan out but we haven't really seen that meaningful or i haven't seen that meaningful drop that i had thought might happen so i've mm-hmm. seen heard talk to a few uh, reasonably decent uh, big players in the sme space and stuff where they have said that we have had to pull back because we don't want to get charity representations but by and large i thought that there will be a lot of uh, uh, upheaval right similar to what happened with the prepaid card space right but that has not really manifested itself but i think uh, right right now as people are figuring out the regulations i think what might happen is you might see a drop in the total volumes but then overall i think eventually goes back to what we discussed earlier on ki matlab requirement to hai so it will come back up the only thing will be hopefully it will be much more uh, ethical much more uh, kind of uh, rule based and kind of uh, following the right approach the right way to do things and that will lead to a sustainable growth agreed as a lsp so again uh, first of all one of the one, one things was we were effectively like a digital aggregator now the question is i think that is something the ries will have to look at from a standpoint that are we a lsp at that point in time as well or not because frankly speaking we are not in the study abroad space till date we have not really uh, done any part of origination in terms of kyc or in terms of uh, any collections or setting up of nash we've stayed away from that we had pretty much said that hey you will eventually if i figure out that sbi is the best partner for you we will give your file to sbi and then you can process the application through sbi we are there to help solve any questions but we will not okay. really be doing your kyc and the whole purpose of setting up our nbfc to be very clear of setting up the re was the intent behind that was hey once we have the re we can do all these things in the colending construct and then there is no room for ambiguity around hey uh, why are you doing this or why are you doing that so i think so- the why we applied for the nbfc license almost 2 years back and uh, just we actually applied it just at the start of the uh, kind of pandemic and uh, last year when we got the license uh, the idea really was hey as an re then i can really uh, follow all the regulations and kind of uh, work with the banks to pro- do the loan but i think as of, even from an lsp provide standpoint if i just talk because as an as in the domestic space we do want to work with certain lsps <laughs> right so i think from that standpoint i think again um, i don't think there is anything wrong with in the guidelines there might be some places where people can question things that hey we need clarity and so on and so forth mm. but overall uh, it'll lead to a better uh, kind of ecosystem in my mind totally agree totally agree so i think uh, the the way i see it is that uh, before the lending was regulated the way it is right now like a couple of years back digital lending there were a lot of people trying i mean experimenting with a lot of shit i mean you have seen apps that ask for your uh, 
sweat, blood, tears, and soul, right? As an information before they give you a ten thousand rupee loan, and they ultimately end up sending messages to your contact list and you know calling up people and all of that thing ha- things happen, which actually sent people into shock or you know landed them in hospital because of heart attacks because of because they fell into disrepute because of those kind of activities, and no one was expecting that or never neither was it clearly mentioned. So a lot of that you see in the guidelines today mainly. tries to protect the consumer from these kind of activities and it's more about you know trying to uh, protect the consumer from or making them aware of what they are getting into like who are they getting into bed with how is the collection going to be how is this process going to be there is now a request uh, mandate to issue a key fact statement yep. that will talk about everything that includes apr not just the interest rate but also your processing fee and also any other additional fees that you're going to be that have to be factored in into the apr and a lot of that things so i think uh while we people like you and me do understand uh, like even when you take a loan we kind of understand the impact or the kind of uh, what you are getting into when you are doing it on an app on an impulse purchase on amazon and you are let's say using amazon pay you are not expecting that to end up into this kind of a situation wherein you have a 100 page uh, fine print behind that and all of that so it's kind of probably you know it's for the better that way but a lot of people uh, i have seen uh, try to also talk about uh, how will this affect the innovations going forward because what i mean this is what uh, i've heard and i'm quoting is that the way the guidelines are structured are to inhibiting uh, inhibiting the innovations right now right so the thing is that ki will this hold back the development of digital lending for the next billion the way it should not have i mean is it putting constraints on innovation in a way that maybe it will push the kind of penetration that you have gotten into the the bharat or the uh, untapped market by at least a few years or at least a decade in some cases people have quoted so what is what are your thoughts on that so my 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 thought is i think it will just uh, force uh, um, entrepreneurs or force people to think harder on building the right solutions rather than just getting the um, quick way out i think so i don't Agreed. i don't think it will be a case of hey, it's holding going to hold back innovation because i think that's the whole beauty of it right i mean if i cannot you know innovate there will be someone else will come in and there are multiple people out there i mean we mm-hmm. are not i mean a, a group of 10 people sitting on a table might not be the only smart people out there right there will sure. be a th- 11 person who is smarter and kind of will come with a better answer and i Agreed. think go i i think i've seen that clamor a lot around it will uh, restrict innovation and i think it's i always think go back to it's a case of uh the fox and the sour grapes uh kind of a thing uh cuz uh, i mean at the end of the day if i look at the from a infrastructure standpoint on one end we talk about india's tech and kind of saying hey now we have the a coming in and we have the osen and so on and so forth so i think and we had even in the gff the rbi governor saying hey we are here for all all for innovation right so i think yep. i think uh, i don't think anything has uh, happened from a regulatory standpoint when they're saying hey we are going to stifle innovation i think what you say is do, you can't really uh um go out there and uh do a daylight robbery in the garb of innovation right oh, i'm using that word and as, as an extreme because again uh, the thing is will this regulation impact players who are doing the right things as well or who, are, who have the right intentions who just are waiting for the innovation kind of the regulation to come through and may, maybe they were kind of walking the fine line on certain points will that impact them yes it might impact them but the reason the regulator had to step in was because there were a lot more players who were clearly flouting the lines 
considerably and it's not just a the chinese app thing that we talk that we see news there were right. a lot of indian companies who were doing things which were clearly unethical and clearly right so as a regulator i mean i don't think that there's anything wrong with it and i in terms of innovation i don't think it will set us back by a few many years um, yeah i mean there will will there be a lull yes will vcs be uh, kind of scared yes uh, but then will we have better models coming up i think yes i i i've got faith on that i completely agree with you i mean uh, chinese apps were the very extreme cases but i have personally also seen a few lending startups from india like doing things that would probably you know uh, or things that have happened to me also on bnbl products right like i would have been like why was not i informed of this earlier and then exactly. you kind of reach out and they are like so you had accepted the terms and conditions and i go and i check the fine print and then i'm like okay they are actually saying this right here like it's when you are getting into a lending product you should probably actually go to the fine print and exactly. i think that is where the key fs will uh, the key fact statement will really help a lot yeah and uh, i personally feel that i don't think this will stifle innovation as much i mean to a certain extent people would kind of think twice before innovating or building out something around lending but i think this will also push towards a lot more meaningful lending so this is more like a right guide rails right because this is what you have to do these are the things that are an absolute no no so you, innovation will probably grow in the right direction rather than just growing all over in a random manner and then picking up on the right things this will probably give more of a, a direct path on what can and what cannot be done so i think that should be very interesting to uh, observe so i think this was a really interesting conversation ankit uh, moving forward i think what would i want to understand or rather what would i like to do as a as something that really worked earlier for me is a rapid fire round so i'll have around 5 6 questions for you okay. you have around uh, let's say 10 seconds to answer that you cannot take more than that time to think okay okay and uh, we'll see how it goes okay all right awesome so first question is tell me about one noteworthy fintech startup that you have come across apart from your own self um i hear three <laughs> paytm zarada and uh, sofi in the us okay but those are those are like really huge startups any any smallish startup or you know any any like insurtech whatever feel it is um okay um in terms of the smallest startups um i i'll just uh, i'll probably in the interest of time i'll just go with uh, the insurance provider that we are currently are using our services from pascare so they made uh, they've gotten us corporate insurance and it was pretty a seamless process so yeah awesome awesome great great so a uh, second question you know uh, two years ago pro- like if we were currently in let's say 2020 uh, and you were given to be i mean you were given an opportunity to be a ceo of a very big mnc conglomerate so would you rather be that or would you still stick to being a founder um i would love to be the mnc ceo but i think i given my nature and given my uh, uh, kind of uh, thing i'll happy be happier being a startup founder because i'll be a lousy mnc ceo <laughs> all right awesome that's very candid of you thank you uh moving to the next question uh this is more where you have to arrange the options that i'll give you mm-hmm. uh in order of priority that a startup founder early stage startup founder should look at these things in. okay so the question is arrange the following in the order of importance the way an early startup founder should prioritize it 
first one is product market fit second one is building the right team third one is building an mvp fourth one is raising the first funds and fifth one is identifying the right gtm to uh, what do you say lower the cap uh building the right team is obviously number one by a huge huge margin uh, okay. i know i know i mean right team might be a great question of right team for what i think but if you get five good people uh, you you build a more uh, i would say complementary team i think everything will be figured out everything will figure out over time so Got i think it. right up there before anything else right team is a number one what's number. next i think for me the second thing is really around uh, mvp Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. I mean, now that I have a team, I've found a market. Hey, let Let me just throw something out there and figure it out. Got it. Really. Um. I mean, we've we've raised lower lower amounts of funds, so I will pretty much uh, put the identifying the right GTM to lower the cap before the product market fit. But okay. I think, uh, but I think it's more a case of. Uh, uh the it might be a case of segment as well because in some markets uh, product market fit might be the better thing to figure out first mm-hmm. i personally would say hey, i mean identifying the right gtm uh, so that you can lower the kind of cap and then the product market fit and i think raising the right funds in my mind is the last thing because uh, i think uh, no matter what you say i think once you raise the uh, even the first amount of funds there is a responsibility you have uh to be able to return the shareholder uh kind of money and i think that okay. might uh that might be that might not not allow you to kind of do what you want to do perfect sarpak talwar has at and you have to be answerable to other people after that so what your own business agreed agreed thank you so much i think that was really uh, really really candid of you uh one more question that i have is basically if not education loans what other problem statement would you love to solve so i would actually so when i when i said sports for sure because that was why i had left my job at capital one uh you know esa so i think uh, growing up i i did play a bit of team sports and i think i learned a lot i really learned the most playing team sports around okay. um many attributes of work uh so i think uh but what i always felt was we didn't really have a lot of focus on sports in as a society and more around an overall ecosystem so it's if you're playing football then you might join an academy or a coach who will just teach you football or run you you run from here to there but there isn't really a holistic approach so something like a, a football club barcelona academy or the madrid academy so i think that is something i would have wanted to work on the kind of grassroots sports in india are uh, doing scientifically yeah that's uh, that definitely comes to mind and awesome. education to be honest is another thing not just education loans education itself is another thing awesome awesome and last question for the day i promise this is a finally the last one uh name one founder that you look up to i mean again again among the bigger players if you ask me i'll pretty yeah. much uh, i'll pretty much say uh nitin kamath cuz um, more than anything i think uh, uh, i mean so i personally value kind of uh, consistency more than anything else and if you look at zerodha whether it be the nudges that they do or the varsity so it's not really just about profits uh, but it's about what is doing right for the customer and i think uh, that's why i kind of look up to 
Awesome, yeah. awesome. Thank you so much, Ankit. You have been a real sport, and you answered all the questions candidly. Thanks a lot for that. And it was a really insightful session that we had with you today. I think I got a lot to learn about digital lending as well as you know how to probably you know interpret the guidelines or the, some of the things. And uh, definitely got to learn a lot about underwriting and education loans. So thanks a lot for that. Thanks uh, for having me. It was a pleasure having you here, Ankit.